Second Corinthians chapter 7. Let's begin reading this morning, brethren, in verse 8. Beloved people of God, let us hear the word of God. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Amen. I pray the Lord bless the reading of his precious word to our hearts this morning. Brethren, the word of God defines repentance as a change of mind primarily. As we have seen in our studies in the last few weeks, uh, it certainly has the emotional element of remorse and regret but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the biblical writers use the word repentance in the primary meaning of a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. Now this is vividly illustrated for us in the passage set before our eyes this morning. The name of this message is Repentance to Salvation. This is uh, actually a continuance of uh, uh, our message last Sunday morning. We had three heads last Sunday morning, and we covered two of them. I have taken the last head and uh, developed it a bit more, and we will have yet three heads again this morning. First, Repentance and godly sorrow. Secondly, repentance and its fruits. And thirdly, repentance and salvation. Though God being our helper, we want to consider repentance and godly sorrow first. This is something of uh, an expanded review of, of uh, the primary point that we covered last week. But it's important that we lay hold of Paul's driving theme here, and so I want to develop this just a bit more. <clears throat> Paul enumerates in this passage, uh, particularly in verse 11, <clears throat> the ways in which the Corinthians' sorrow led them to repentance. 
If I hear anything from uh, the struggling children of God, those who are wrestling to know whether or not they are truly sons of God, wrestling over the issue of their faith and their repentance, they often want to know, how do I know if my repentance is real? And we have before us a guide to understanding whether or not our repentance is in fact that which is godly. It is always tied to godly sorrow. And we must be careful. I begin with something of a warning. While godly sorrow attends true repentance, we must be very careful not to begin to dictate to people what their experiences of that sorrow must be like. There are those that uh, would tend to act as if one doesn't shed a certain number of tears. It can't be a true repentance. We will leave how that sorrow is manifested in the hands of the Lord. But we do not want to diminish the fact that genuine repentance is accompanied by sorrow. You cannot come face to face by the power of God's Holy Spirit with you, your wicked heart, and your rebellions against God and not be grieved. None of us, in the withering presence of what we really are, can laugh that off. We can't even be happy about it. The joy comes from knowing that God in His mercy and His grace saves us from our sins through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, there are those who tend to think that unless you live in a mournful, groaning state, you're not really spiritual. That is not biblical either. But when I say that, we're not throwing out the idea that there shouldn't be regular grief in your life over your sins. I'm not going to tell you that you have to carry a box of Kleenex around with you all the time. I'm not saying that you have to count the number of tears, or even if you wept or you didn't. But I say again, brethren, God is holy. And when He comes by the power of His Spirit and makes you see what you really are, it is a grievous sight. And you will mourn. However you manifest that before the Lord, I leave in God's hands. I'm not the inspector of your penitent frame. But I am the one who declares, according to the Word of God, that repentance, as the Apostle said, is accompanied, in fact, springs forth from godly sorrow. These things are always joined together. As repentance and faith are inseparable, so there is a godly sorrow when we repent. Now, <clears throat> we considered in our last message a clear and important distinction 
In fact, an eternally important distinction between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And we want to visit that again just for a few moments. Worldly sorrow, as we have seen, <clears throat> is birthed by the flesh. Anybody and everybody does experience worldly sorrow at some time or another in their lives. There are a number of reasons that we may grieve, that we may moan over circumstances. If we want to say that in a general sense, quite obviously, all of us probably, I'll try not to be too universal here, but probably all of us at some time or another have felt that the pangs, the, the, the piercing of being sorry over something we've done. But that doesn't mean it's godly sorrow. Any pagan on the planet can feel remorse and regret as his conscience bangs within him that he's done something wrong. The tragedy in our day is that there's so little understanding of the preaching of the gospel and of true conversion that many mistake a natural feeling bad over having done bad things for true conversion and repentance. Oh, I say with all of my heart, if you don't understand what I mean when I warn, don't confuse conviction with conversion. Then you need to give yourself to study that issue until you understand what I'm saying. Do you know the difference between a piercing conviction that you've done something wrong and true conversion whereby that sorrow leads you to true repentance before God? There will be many in hell who experience real conviction who were never converted. Worldly sorrow begins, continues, and perishes in the flesh. Its father is pride, and the womb from which it is birthed is the darkened human heart. We keenly sense doing bad things sometimes. Now, we can live in absolute and abject hardness where we do unspeakably vile and perverse things and never have a twinge of conscience. We become so hardened sometimes. But even then, there are times when the conscience will eke out just a little piercing. That was wrong. You know it was wrong. We do everything we can to quiet that voice. We'll try to drink it away or drug it away or pursue the flesh until the voice is quiet. But don't, don't ever think that because you've heard that little voice, think that of necessity, God was dealing with you and bringing you to conversion. 
You have a conscience. And as the Word of God plainly teaches us in Romans, the conscience can make a lot of noise when we do things. We were created in the image of God. And there is indelibly stamped, even though it has been marred and virtually obliterated by sin, there's still the voice of conscience that has the last bits of the glimmerings of God's character and will in it. And you can do something wrong and that conscience can pierce through to your heart and say, Ah, you know that was bad. You know that was wicked. And you can sorrow. Yeah, been a bad fellow, been a bad girl. But that's not godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow does not groan because sin is an offense against holy God, but because it fears God's judgments. It grieves because of personal loss and because it fears the consequences of sin. As we said last week, no one likes to get caught. It doesn't feel good. But just because you feel bad about getting caught doesn't mean that there's one atom of godly sorrow in you. Because fleshly sorrow, driven by pride, filtered through a wicked and sinful heart, fears consequences, fears shame, fears humiliation, feels bad that it's caused some other people to weep. But had that never happened, it would go right on doing what it was doing. I had a, a prison ministry for about ten years before I was appointed elder in one of the Lord's assemblies. And even during that time, and I remember going to a very large jail in the state I lived in at that time, and I asked the, the, the very big turnout of prisoners that came uh, that evening, the inmates, I said, how many of you are sorry that you got caught? Every hand went up. Every one of them. They were very sorry. I said, how many of you are sorry that you made a mess of things? Embarrassed your parents or embarrassed your wife, humiliated your family, grieved your friends. I mean, how many of you are sorry about that? Well, a number of hands went down. Probably still at least about half the hands were up. And I said, how many of you are sorry for what you did because the thing in and of itself was wrong? And by God's grace, you intend never to pursue it again. 
only two or three hands remained up. And that's kind of surprising honesty in a jail of all places. But that's a good illustration of what we're talking about. I'm sorry. I sold the van for drug money and it all went up my nose. I'm sorry. I lost my job over this thing. I'm sorry. I hurt my parents' feelings because I've been acting so wickedly. I'm sorry that I've done this or that. But there's no change. If you'd never gotten caught, you'd go on enjoying what you were doing. Oh, wicked sinner. Worldly sorrow ends in eternal death. Because it isn't the sorrow under repentance. Those who manifest worldly sorrow may genuinely, and I mean they really, really, genuinely feel a keen sense of their badness. Yeah. I really messed up. That's what we usually hear, that type of thing. We don't generally hear people say, I sinned. You go, oh, I, I really did. I, I made some mistakes. I, I did some bad things. And they may truly regret those actions. Some of you may be seeing a billboard that's been put up here recently about a young man who was driving under the influence and uh, had a terrible wreck that took the lives of two young women. And it's often the case. He survived and the other two perished. Now they've put the, the, the billboard up all over town showing him in his anguish. And he said to the parents of those whose lives were snuffed out by his foolishness, I'm sorry. And he really weeps. I'm sorry. But that will end in death. Except it leading to the throne of Christ. You take children when they're caught. And they say, I'm sorry, Mommy. I'm sorry, Daddy. Often they're saying that because they're thinking if they say it and make it sound like they mean it enough, maybe you won't punish them. See, that's worldly sorrow. That's at the bargaining table. That's gambling on maybe a good outcome if I say I'm sorry enough. And brethren, this is all now that our society requires of anybody. If someone just says, I'm sorry, and they sound like they mean it, what else are you going to exact from this poor fellow? But that sorrow ends in death, no matter how real it is. It may not be fake at all. I really may be sorry that I've grieved my mother, my father, my brothers, my sisters, my children, 
my aunts, my uncles, my whole family, my society. We see this kind of sorrow in Saul when he said to David, I have played the fool. I've played the fool and have erred exceedingly. David had the opportunity to destroy his enemy. Going into the camp and then coming out with Saul's belongings and saying, Saul, the Lord put you in my hand, but I had mercy on you. It smote Saul's heart. He knew that David was good. Here was the opportunity that David could have taken his sword and smitten him, pinned him to the ground with a spear, a sword, or something else. And Saul keenly felt it. I've been a fool. Here I am chasing this fellow. He hadn't done anything to me. I've just been jealous of him. I've just hated the way he makes me feel. Uh, everyone dances around singing, Saul's killed his thousands and David is ten thousand. That really gripes me. But he didn't do anything wrong. He felt it. He knew he was wrong. But brethren, it was a fleshly, worldly sorrow. It didn't lead him to repentance. It didn't turn away his murderous heart from David. While Saul grieved over his foolishness, David knew. Read Samuel. David knew, he said, No, one of these days he's going to kill me. I guess I'd better head over and stay with the Philistines. See, there's the sorrow of disappointment. And I could go through a long list. We'll just hit a few. There's the sorrow of disappointment. Every day people come to the realization that they do wrong things. And they might not call them sin. They just somehow or another have a little standard and they know that they've gone against that standard. They become deeply disappointed in themselves. Oh, I was holding up a high standard. I was holding other people to that standard. And now I've thrown my own standard away here. Boy, I'll try to do better. And they'll vow to do better. And they mean it when they say it. New Year's comes along. They're going to turn over a new leaf. I'm not going to eat this anymore. I know that's killing me. And I'm not going to put that in my body anymore. I know that's bad for me. And I'm, I'm not going to do this or say this to my mother-in-law because after all, I could probably put up with her a little longer. Sometimes they don't even make it to the end of the day. Sometimes with a monumental effort, they might make it a couple of weeks, a month, some people even go a year or so with some of the vows they make to change. But keep watching. If they don't go back to it, usually they just switch that sin for another. I'm going to give up that smoking. That's bad for me. Oh, I'm going to get rid of it as if that were the greatest sin in our society somehow. I'm going to get rid of that. Oh, yeah, I'm going to chunk my cigarettes. And what do they do? They eat three times more. 
What do they do? They swap one habit for another. So, you know, they just channel these things one place, that drive they pick up and they move it over here. It's kind of heavy, but now it's hidden under this particular habit. Or they start doing better things, good things. They get involved with the community. They've been disappointed with themselves. They've had a little glimpse of their own wickedness. They've been to an AA meeting or some 12-step program. And they realize, oh, okay, I guess I need to admit I'm bad here somehow. Or that I've fallen short of the standard, whatever the standard is, whatever your supreme being is. And having glimpsed their wickedness, they want to feel better about themselves because now they feel bad. So they'll take up a life that's more respectable. Oh, I've heard this over and over. Well, you know, the wife and I, we're going back to church now. And that's just about all they do. They go back to church. But there's nothing of Christ in it. There's no change of life. There's no change of heart. Witnessing to a young man recently, I encouraged him to come to a worship service. I talked with him a little bit about the Lord and about his soul. And he said, yeah, you know, my mom's been telling me I ought to get back into church. I, I probably ought to do that. Now, why is he saying that? Well, mom and dad had a standard for me, and I really haven't lived in that standard very much. And yeah, I feel, I'm feeling kind of bad. I realize it's not too good, so I'll do a little better. I'll go to church now. I'll buy a big black Bible. I'll talk religion with the best of them. Hey, <laughs> praise the Lord. Amen, brother. And their lives don't change. Some of their outward habits are manipulated, modified, reprogrammed, redirected, but there's never been any change because it isn't godly sorrow. It's worldly. It comes out of the flesh. And it perishes with the flesh. So now they're more religious and they feel better about themselves. Met a man once that said, yeah, I used to be pretty rough, used to live pretty bad lifestyle, but you know, I started going down to this little church and, and on the weekends we go out now where the storms come through and tear up these buildings and we go home and we go and build houses for people now and we do all that kind of stuff. Now that's all good. I'm, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with rebuilding people's houses. This is a lovely thing to do. There are many things in the community we can as an assembly do. This is fine. But listen, listen carefully. So why do you do this? Oh, well, I feel I needed to do something good. I need to do something right. Uh, you know, I was involved with a lot of bad stuff. I feel better about myself now. Listen to them when they come through their program. I feel better about myself now. Brother, this is worldly sorrow. And it damns. It doesn't help. Oh, society may be a tad better, but the soul is still in darkness. Oh, this is so serious. Children, adults, this is so serious. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world but lose his own soul? 
Do you know the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow? There's the sorrow of shame. There are many. When someone has uh, been exposed to living a life of shame, they're discovered. They begin to reform their outward behavior. Oh, I've embarrassed everyone. Oh, I've embarrassed myself. I'm a public official. I'm, I'm uh, uh, supposedly the, the wife or the mother or the father of, of uh, prominent people. And Oh, now I've, I've been caught and there's this shame all about everything that I've done. Brethren, when Judas realized he'd betrayed an innocent man, his sense of shame was overwhelming. It drove him to want to change. He went back and said, here, take the money. They said, nope, we made a deal. We have a covenant together. He said, take your money. He wanted that money before. Wasn't there a change? It surely was. I want to get this right. I want to straighten this out. Too late. his grief was so deep he took his own life. Ultimately that was out of the flesh. There's a sorrow over loss. I knew men or I knew a man who was addicted to cocaine. His doctor told him that if he continued he would certainly die. He was sorry that he damaged himself and his family. and Fearing the loss of his life, he vowed never to return it, to return to it. As far as I know, he never did. But that's not godly sorrow. That's worldly sorrow. Well, he went further than some who say, ah, well, I'm going to die of something. Let's have another toot. While it looks better to society, well, he reformed, he changed. There was no real change. Outward reform is not godly sorrow in and of itself. There's the sorrow of consequence, and this is the one common to all of us. When it is clear that we are not going to escape, we've been caught, and the penalty is coming, we're sorry. Those people are sorry. Dread, anguish, bitter sorrow, fear. They all drive us to grieve. I won't mention the man's name, but there was a performer who was in an airplane and the engines conked out and the plane began to drop straight toward the earth. And he bowed his head. He was a wicked man. He was perverse. He helped corrupt a generation with his music. And he said, Oh God, if you'll save me, if you'll preserve me in this one, I'll serve you the rest of my days. 
all of a sudden the engine began to sputter. The plane corrected itself, and he landed safe and sound. He said, I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to keep my word. He even became a preacher. And for years, stood in the pulpit, told people to repent of his sins, for repent of their sins. But after about a decade, that wore through. He went right back to what he was before. Worldly sorrow may lead to a temporary or even a long-lasting outward reform. But God knows that the heart has never changed. Godly sorrow is eternally different from worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is thoroughly man-centered. Godly sorrow begins with God, is focused upon God, and ends with God. It is grief or regret that is according to the mind and will of God. In other words, by the power of the Holy Spirit and God's Word, God brings us to see our sin as He sees it. We realize that our thinking, our words, our deeds are not in harmony with His divine character. And we sorrow that we have rebelled against a good and holy God. You see, godly sorrow, God willing, as we'll see next week, manifests itself as in the life of David when he cried out, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. Well, now, wait a minute. He'd sinned against Bathsheba. He'd sinned against Bathsheba's husband and actually had him murdered. He'd sinned against all kinds of people. What does he mean? I recognize that no matter how my sin manifests itself and who it touches and stains and corrupts, that that sin is against the Most High God. That's who I must deal with. Children, adults, when that situation where you feel so bad, you're just glad it's over, you're glad it's done. I said I'm sorry, let's get on with life. If you haven't realized that your sins were against God and that you need to repent before Him, you are manifesting the flesh and that sorrow will end with death. Godly sorrow goes to the throne of God because the, the sinner realizes his sin is against God. I've been made in the image of God. And no matter who I lie to or fornicate with or, or pervert or hurt or do violence to, whatever the sin may be, that sin is ultimately against the King in heaven. I have broken His laws. 
brethren, if the Holy Spirit makes you see that, you will sorrow. You will grieve that you've rebelled against a good God. We realize that our thinking, our words, our deeds are not in harmony with His divine character and we, we, we sorrow that we have grieved the Most High, that we've offended the Most High. Godly sorrow arises in our hearts when we see the foulness of our sins from God's perspective. Brethren, Spurgeon had a sermon called The Withering Work of the Holy Spirit. Now, that wouldn't fly in a lot of modern evangelism today. Uh, we're all tied up with wanting to walk around with grins on our faces all of the time. But Spurgeon understood that if the Holy Spirit doesn't come and tell you who you are, you'll never repent. You will never repent. Well, I'm doing some bad things and now I'll try to do some good things. And it might even be good things that God has said. But you're doing them for the wrong reason. You'll never gain any points with God that way. You'll never earn His favor. You'll never earn that salvation by saying, well, now I'll turn over that new leaf. No. Godly sorrow begins when you see what you are and you come to the God that made you and you don't have any more excuses. Amen. No more excuses. You're not telling anybody how okay you are now. You're not saying, well, yeah, I've done some bad things, but you know, at least I'm, I'm not like them. I'm not like Hitler. I'm not like in any of the so-called uh, uh, statues of evil in our, our worldly thinking. Oh, brethren, godly sorrow is vital. Listen, God says through Isaiah the prophet, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit. Godly sorrow doesn't puff you up. It brings you down. And it makes you look to the Lord as your only hope. God says, even though I inhabit the high and lofty places, I'll tell you who I consort with. Those that are broken up over their sins. Oh, there are Christians that say, okay, well, you know, I've, I've done this. Somebody's come and told me, and yeah, it's bad. I realize it's bad now. Okay, well, let's get this straight. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I, I really am. I, okay, now can we go on? Good, let's get on with life. Let's just go on now. It's done. No life in that. When the Holy Spirit has told you that you're wrong, there's a grief and a sorrow that you just don't smile and toss behind your back. Now again, I'm not talking about being morbid. I'm not talking about walking around with a long, sad face all the time. I'm talking about a clear awareness that you have sinned against God, you know it, and all you want to do 
is be right with Him. You're not going to point fingers at anybody else. You're not interested in saying, well, he was in it with me. They were with it. I would have never done it if I was with them. All that goes. And you grieve that you've sinned against God. Isaiah likewise says in chapter 66, verse 2, For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look. You hear that? God will look to a vessel of flesh and blood. Here's the man I will look to. He says, Even to him that is of a poor and of a contrite spirit, and that trembleth at my word. God likes to consort with those kind of people. Not only does He like to, He does. And they know it. David knew this. That's why he said, The Lord is nigh to them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such that be of a contrite spirit. The word contrite there means crushed. I've been crushed. By what? Someone calling you names? No! I see the righteousness and holiness and purity of God. And I realize I've been a rebel against it. I realize I'm doing my own thing here. Even with religious clothes wrapped all around it, I'm still living for me. When Jesus said, I came to heal the brokenhearted. He wasn't talking about people that have lost their girlfriends or their boyfriends or not getting their way in life or who are sad over a tragedy in their lives. No, the Lord comforts us and all those things. I'm not putting that away. But what it's talking about is those that have been wounded by the Spirit. The Spirit of God has brought the Word and made them realize you're an idolater. You're a covetous man. You're a wicked lecher. You are self-righteous. You are self-centered. You live for your own selfish pleasure. When the Spirit of God brings the Word home, we do just like Paul. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, I'm glad that didn't stop there. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He saved sinners. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself announced that those in His kingdom are blessed. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. He's not talking about people that have lost their homes in a tornado. That's a tragedy. Not mocking that or diminishing the importance of that. That isn't what He's talking about. He's talking about those who mourn because they realize they're sinners. And they realize they can't look to themselves. Oh, I did better last week. I did this for that person and I did that for that person. And even though I lied like a dog over there, I feel a little better because I did these things. None of that is there. It's all swept away by the Word of God and the Spirit. And you stand before God saying, Lord, I'm undone unless you've got something for a sinner like me. And the good news is He does. He does. The Lord Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly for His people. And He was hung upon the cross at Calvary 
bearing all the fierce and furious anger of his father for the sins of his people. He was brutalized. He was crushed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he openeth not his mouth. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why? So there could be good news for those that mourn, for those that grieve over their sins. There is good news. Flee to Jesus Christ and trust Him alone. Throw all your stinking works and your religious rags down on the ground and flee to Christ. There's hope. There's help. This kind of sorrow naturally expresses itself in a change of mind. We change our minds. That sorrow, that grief, turns my mind away from my sin. Not just because it makes me miserable. But because it's an offense to my Maker. And it causes me to look to Him and believe His gospel promise. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. What's He talking about? He's talking about people who've come to see their sins and they're laboring with a sense of their sin. And they know that they're wrong before God and they don't know how to get right. Their hearts stand and testify against them. The law of God stands before them. Ten fingers all pointed at them. Damn! You've had other gods before me. You haven't walked with me even though you even professed me. You put me off on the Lord's day for your own selfish pleasures. You've profaned my name by calling yourself a Christian and living like the world. You have profaned my name by walking around saying, Oh, my Lord, oh, my God, interjecting that which is holy in everything that is vile and common. You haven't kept my day. You haven't worshipped me. You've killed in your heart by hating without a cause, even if you never pulled a trigger and dropped someone's corpse to the ground. You haven't honored your father and your mother. That is the law of God. And He's not bending it for anybody that I know of. You will not bear false witness. You will not commit adultery. You will not covet your neighbor's wife. All of these things, all of them stand there and point at us. And the heart it's being dealt with by the Holy Spirit. Doesn't run. Wants to. Doesn't run. It stops making excuses and shuts its mouth before God and says, I'm guilty. You're right. I am the man. Then, those precious words are sweet to the soul. Come 
unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will. Jesus Christ, the God-man, died to save His people from their sins. And brethren, He pours out His glorious Spirit and tracks down His dear children. And whether they've cried a river or whether they simply kneel by the side of their bed in quiet sorrow before God, their heart's desire is to be right with their God. No matter what. And friend, they'll get to Christ no matter what. You won't hold them back. It'll be just like that little woman who for all those years had a bleeding issue. And she looked at a crowd of people and she knew Christ was in there. That's who they were thronging. Couldn't even see Him. But she said, if I can get to Him, I'll be healed. And she began to push and she probably did all kind of unfeminine things to get in there, but she got a hold of the hem of that garment. Blind Bartimaeus sitting on the side of the road when he heard that Jesus, that Jesus was passing by. He said, Have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me, son of David. And what did the crowd do? Be quiet. Don't bother him. And it said he cried out all the more, Son of David! Son of David! My favorite verses in all of Scripture. And Jesus stood still. He heard his cry and sinner, he will hear yours. The heart that knows what it is will seek Jesus Christ until he finds rest there. And he may be in a moment, and he may wrestle for 18 months like John Bunyan, but sinners that are hungry and sinners that are burdened and sinners that are grieving, whatever form that takes over their rebellions against God, will find rest in Christ. This is why Paul says, I'm glad. I was grieved when I sent you that letter at first. But I'm glad, Corinthians, now. I don't, I don't grieve now. I'm not remorseful now. Because my letter, reproving you and rebuking you, was used by the Spirit of God to pierce your heart. And you had a godly sorrow. And that's a sorrow that manifests itself in repentance. And that's a repentance to salvation. Well, God willing, we will try the next time we meet on this subject to get to the fruits of repentance.
and see it even more clearly as we scour this passage. But friend, if you cannot tell the difference between a worldly, fleshly sorrow that begins and ends in you and that which has been breathed into new life by the Holy Spirit, you're in a dangerous place. Oh, come to Christ. Flee to Christ. He is a willing and a blessed Savior to all those who come unto Him. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.